there's very little that the information security team itself is able to accomplish without support across the organization. I'm sure there are exceptions, but in most organizations in which I've been able to play a role, the InfoSec team is leading part of the effort, but there's always another team that's needed, whether it's the team that's racking the hardware, whether it's the team that's going through and supporting you in the procurement process, whether it's the legal team in terms of contract reviews, you are to a very large extent dependent upon other organizations to be able to accomplish your mission. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. I'm Steve Moore. And on today's show, I sit down with Andrew Wild, Chief Information Security Officer at Data Center Solutions Provider, QTS Data Centers. We talk about building an IT security budget, the challenges of prioritizing resources to balance risk, and the value of cooperation, something that's often more difficult to obtain than the budget itself. Managing an IT security budget isn't just about spreadsheets and internal procurement processes. It's about understanding your organization's business priorities. Add to that the management of your vendors and VARs with which you work. A CISO's focus is to protect the organization and measurably reduce risk, which often requires the acquisition of technology. However, those decisions aren't just about tech. There's a lot of management planning that must occur. A combination of transparency, forecasting, and relationship building is good for business. Yours, your vendors, and your VARs. Tell me, somebody who was at West Point and then an officer uh, and then moving into becoming an engineer, uh, that's a pretty wide base. Uh, how did you move from one to the other in that succession? I mean, did you have a very technical role? in Signal Corps, how did one thing lead to the other in terms of becoming an engineer in technology? Uh, for me, it was a natural progression, Steve. I studied electrical engineering at the United States Military Academy, was commissioned in the Army Signal Corps, and had a, while it was very tactical, it was a technical role, uh, being responsible for managing and implementing communications, supporting tactical operations. I enjoyed my time in the Army very much. I still to this day miss the camaraderie uh, of being part of that uh, fraternity of uh, men and women serving a nation. But for me, the transition into uh, the private sector was not difficult in terms of moving from military service to uh, technology. I did technology in the Army, quite amount of leadership in the Army as well. Uh, but the technology change, while it certainly was a different type of technology, that wasn't a difficult change for me. You come from a very technical background, but now you're an officer, now you're a leader. What was the biggest thing you had to pick up in that department uh, to be a better leader? That was certainly taught in service. But the, the other toolbox items, tell me about that. How did you make that transition from code to mentor, leader, vision setter? Well, for me, the, the mentor and leader, that, was, that largely came from skills I had developed uh, from my attendance at the United States Military Academy, and then serving in the United States Army. So that was there. Uh, I think the bigger growth opportunity for me, in some cases it was challenging, was in the private sector really understanding how organizations work, how you set business objectives, uh, and how you fund them principally. Budgeting, while it varies company to company, I think anyone that aspires to have a more senior leadership role in an organization needs to understand how things are 
budgeted and financed and paid for. Because at the end of the day, uh, in the private sector at least, organizations exist to generate profit. And it doesn't matter how secure you are or how good your website is, if you're not able to support the organization's fundamental objective, which for most of them is to generate profit. You mentioned that earlier when we spoke, uh, and I find that fascinating. And when you mentioned that, that it's something that a lot of CISOs kind of get wrong. Uh, A lot of current CISOs sort of lack the skill in order to get it right. Uh, Would you agree to that? I think so. And and I would do not consider myself to be an expert in that area at all. It is a continual struggle. I mean, in fact, on my desk right now, I've got spreadsheets printed out covering the desk here, trying to go over the numbers to make sure that the budgets are aligned, that we're going to be able to fund the projects and initiatives we want to do later in the year. And honestly, that is one of the the greatest struggles I have for my team and for the company, I believe is to make sure that I've projected properly, that we've aligned properly. Strategy, in many cases, is pretty straightforward. We, we understand the information security challenges. We all know we need better visibility. We know that we need to be able to focus on response and be able to improve our detection capability and shorten that response time. But it's hard to do any of those if you don't have the people, if you don't have the tools, and you can't get those if you don't have the funding. What's something that a listener could either a benchmark or a question they could ask of themselves, you know, if they're succeeding or failing here? Like, what's the first thing you look at uh, when you're starting off? Maybe you airdrop into a new company. Let's say you're going to new co. Uh, what are what are the things that you that you look at to sort of feel around to say, hey, do I have the ability to forecast and, and do I have the funding I need? Uh, first thing would be a look backwards would be, can you get access? to the budget for the InfoSec area or whichever area in which you're in, can you look at what the the amount that was budgeted in pre- previous years and then what was actually spent? Sometimes that is a way to glean some insight into how well that role is functioning. And not always, because in some cases, an organization may be growing so fast that you are, your budget is continually being adjusted upward, which can be a great thing. An indicator perhaps of some issues, either in execution or the ability to have resources to execute would be if the amount that was budgeted exceeds by a not insignificant amount, the amount that was spent. So if you're not spending everything that you were allocated, that's an indication of a problem within the organization. Absolutely. Along with that, how do you sort of get beyond budget? Obviously, you need to ask for it, and there's sort of influence that needs to go in. You have to understand, as you mentioned, the the business in terms of you know, are there some sort of asymmetric issue or some sort of multiplier that would require even more budget? But going beyond that, is it harder to get dollars or cooperation in many cases? Meaning, so you, I can give you a million dollars, but if you can't deploy it, do you encounter that and, and, and how do you get around that? Well, absolutely. And that's part of what I was um, trying to get to when I was talking about being able to forecast properly, because it's not just the money. At least in my experience, in the information security arena, there's very little that the information security team itself is able to accomplish without support across the organization. I'm sure there are exceptions, but in most organizations in which I've been able to play a role, the InfoSec team is leading part of the effort, but there's always another team that's needed, whether it's the team that's racking the hardware, whether it's the team that's going through and supporting you in the procurement process, whether it's the legal team in terms of contract reviews, you are to a very large extent dependent upon other organizations. 
to be able to accomplish your mission. Uh, it's not just about, well, I need the best XYZ capability and we're going to go and buy that and do it. Yeah, easy to say. It's a lot harder to actually do it because of so many different things that have to be accounted for. Uh, and in many cases, these really do boil down to relationships across the organization. Absolutely. Is there a place in all of this? You hit on this. So there's there's the forecasting, there's the budget, but there's also another sort of engine in here, and that's the whole procurement process itself. Do you have any tips for the aspiring CISO or maybe the security director or maybe the current CISO there? Is there any roadblocks you typically see? You know, How much do you share with your procurement department? Is it hand in hand or is it hands off? No, I try to work very closely, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Particularly when you come into a new organization, it's important to try to learn how the procurement process works. But what is the mechanism through which uh, the value-added resellers, the VARs, are selected? Uh, Do you have the ability to influence which VARs you will get to work with for your information security uh, solutions and services? It's important to know how those are done. It's important to understand how the procurement process works. We all like to plan and think we're on top of everything, but there are times when you need to get something done quickly. Perhaps it's because uh, you've got an opportunity and a particular vendor has a need and you're at the end of a quarter and they're willing to give you a much better deal, better incentives if you can close that deal quickly. It's the last week of quarter and the procurement team is dealing with a lot of that at the end of the quarter because that's what happens. So do you have the relationship and do you have that capital, so to speak, to try to get your project across the finish line and and be able to take advantage of that particular incentive, perhaps? Oh, very wise words. Uh, There's always sort of found money at the end of a year that can be put toward a gap or a need. And having the ability for procurement speed is, is is a great thing for a leader to have in the back pocket. And that's not to say I'm saying you're calling in favors, uh, but if you have been shown to be a person in the organization that replies quickly, that follows the established processes, that knows how to do it the right way, your requests will likely be processed more quickly because the procurement team's going to know, okay, if I do this one, I'm not going to have to redo it five times because this person knows how to put in the request properly. They know the budget line this has to be coded to. They know all those details and what that translates to, at least in my experience, is your stuff gets done. And that is expertise and competency you have to build in the organization. You can really only do it by working with the people, the people in these different teams inside the organization. Brilliant. In my past, we were having some issues with this topic. And uh, I think at the time I was maybe a director or senior director. And I simply asked the question, who is the up-and-comer in procurement? Who is the individual? And if you're listening, a gentleman by the name of Jeremy Johnson was that person. And so we started to develop a friendship and actually helping him with his career. Furthermore, including procurement in our three-year planning process. So when we had something come up and maybe it fell into this category that you mentioned, which is quite common, they knew not only was it going to be coded correctly, but also they knew where it fit in our three-year plan. So they were very familiar with that. And that's maybe one tip I'll share. Uh, I don't know if if uh, you have something addition to add to that, but I think you're, this is a very wise uh, uh, words you're sharing. Uh, the other thing I would say is, you know, it's not always just about within your organization, too. It's about how you work uh, with both the vendors and the VARs. Uh, be considerate of the fact that the vendors and the VARs, they work on a forecasting model where they have to be able to, with some level of precision, predict when opportunities are going to close. 
So I'm not suggesting that you plan your procurement around your vendors or your VAR's needs, but be upfront and be transparent. And if you know that this is something you're investigating now, but you're not going to buy until next year, let them know that. You know, it's it's not, in my experience, they're not going to not service your needs because you're not buying this year, but that allows them to understand. And it also is going to keep them from calling you like every day towards the end of the quarter, thinking they're getting an order when you know it's not happening. Absolutely. Let's unpack that for the uninitiated just, just a little bit. You mentioned forecasting and VARs have that. Explain what that actually means. What, they're, what are they trying to forecast? So in any kind of a sales organization, the uh, organization expects to be able to know what kind of transactions are going to happen, You know what opportunities have been identified, and there is a definite uh, progression through the sales process or the funnel, as some people will call it, where an opportunity for a sale is identified, uh, there's a need, there's a solution developed. And as it starts working through here, people begin to try to plan, well, when do we think this deal is going to close? When is this, if it's a you know something being purchased, when's the purchase order coming in? Now, when's the, the contract going to be signed? People depend upon being able to plan that because that's how companies be able to better plan and meet their their numbers, particularly if it is a publicly traded company. I've learned that things like end of quarters and end of years become of end of calendar years or fiscal years become really, really important targets across the whole spectrum from whether you're trying to keep a good relationship with your vendor to whether you're managing your budget, because if you had funds in your budget in this, towards the end of your fiscal year and you didn't get that spent, you may not have that funds, those funds available in the beginning of your next fiscal year. So the timing becomes really, really important. And I will tell you, this is one of those areas where there's a lot of things that have to be done when you're leading an InfoSec organization that aren't necessarily directly information security. You're not all technology. There's a lot of management planning that has to occur. Absolutely. So a little bit of transparency and a little bit of forecasting, or maybe a lot, is is good for business. I mean, both for the vendors, the VAR, uh, and your business is is what kind of the maybe the final statement in that. Uh, would you agree? Absolutely. You mentioned uh, VAR, and many VARs are even sort of the value-added reseller or sort of avoiding that term or maybe looking to rebrand. But in a general sense, using the term VAR, what makes a good VAR? Or maybe a better question is, what are they getting wrong? And, and how do you work around that? Rather than focus on what's wrong, I would rather focus on what is right. What is it that I expect or like to see? Or how am I surprised pleasantly by the service that a VAR provides? Uh, one is access to technologies. Uh, as a working at a somewhat smaller company, we are under a thousand employees. I don't necessarily command the attention of a sales force, you know, at a particular solution provider uh, that a larger Fortune 100 company might be able to do. Uh, so, Avar in many ways can provide access to the technology, and not just the technology, but the technical resources that know that technology. The ability to work with someone that has used that product. So when I'm looking for a VAR, I don't want someone that's just selling me Solution X. I want someone that is likely either deployed it in their own environment or has deployed it in other customer environments and knows the solution itself. And they're almost an extension 
of the company's uh, sales engineering team, but to the point where they're perhaps not quite as biased because they're someone independent. Now, let's face it, they're making their living off of selling product X, so they are have a vested interest in that. But oftentimes, I've found that the VARs will provide some very valuable information that you might not get working directly with the company itself. I've had VARs tell me, hey, feature X on this. Yeah, it's coming along, but it's not quite there yet. You know, maybe this, you know, it's just useful information. So it's not just, are you giving me the best price? But can you help me out with the, the solution? If I have a problem with it, and I can't get the support I need out of the vendor. Are you going to be able to help me? Can you pressure the vendor if I can't, depending on the size of my relationship with the, the vendor? Those are some of the things that I look for and am pleasantly surprised when I get them. No, that's great. I think as a as a, a source of knowledge, a force multiplier in terms of deployment, and then an advocate back to maybe the, the vendor or the solution provider. All great points there. I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask because I think it's a great one. If you're under great financial scrutiny internally and people are looking to cut costs, is it okay still to pay more for a better experience? And then how do you justify that related to a VAR? So you have two bars, one slightly cheaper, but maybe has a less, a less refined service. How do you talk through that with your internal teams? That is a challenge and it does happen. I think you need to be able to be transparent and open, but also come up with ways to be able to explain the value of the services you're getting from the VAR. And there may be some things that sometimes you have to go along and you go with the, the lowest price. But also, you know, if you've got this relationship with the VAR, oftentimes I found the VARs will work. They may not be able to necessarily meet the lowest price. But if you say, hey, I'm under a lot of pressure here, I really like what you do for us and appreciate what you've done for us. Uh, but I've got a lot of pressure in this one. Uh, and sometimes they can go back and get a better deal. Sometimes they can't. Uh, sometimes that means you may have to throw some business a different direction than you would have liked, but you got to try. Absolutely. You know, there's cases where I see People have made technology investments sort of uh, in the field and the people I speak with where they'll, they'll spend a large sum of money and then not deploy it well or not deploy it completely. And it might have meant just a couple you know, percent more to have additional help at the front side of a deal. To, you know, maybe there's a missed capability or, or, a, or a missed sort of issue during the deployment that if they had had just a little more help and maybe gone with a better partner, whether that's a VAR or a consultant, uh, they would have had a better outcome. So the organizations are often willing to waste money, bigger amounts of money at the end of a project. That's more okay than spending a couple percent more, a couple points more to have a maybe a better outcome at the beginning. That's I see that often. I kind of scratch my head at that. Well, I think part of that is because there's just not an ability to to quantify or explain the difference. If you can say, okay, I understand this particular VAR has the lowest price, but if we go with that, we're going to need to add in a certain amount of consulting services and time that's not included. If we go with this VAR with whom we have a relationship, we know that we can expect a certain level of support that will perhaps allow us to do this mostly ourselves. And that's, that's the way, but you've got to do that on the front end. After it's done, it's kind of too late. <laughs> Absolutely. 
there's an idea that I'm gonna that I'm borrowing here from another CISO uh, that I'd like to introduce because I think you're gonna have a a really interesting idea around that idea. He mentioned that he wants to avoid his security team from being security tool researchers. And this this is related to our VAR conversation. What's your take on that? Like, how does one relate to the other in terms of not wanting your time spent of your security researchers, sorry, your security staff researching tools? What's your position on that? Uh, Depends where the organization is uh, and how, in some level, I think there are some individuals that really enjoy uh, looking at new technologies, but I do think uh, I agree with a large portion of that sentiment in that that is something, uh, in many cases, I want the bars to do for me. Go do the research, come to me and tell me who's interesting. I have a couple of bars that I work with, and one of the things I do enjoy is the opportunity to interact with new solution providers that are perhaps different from others. And that is what saves me from having to do that research. Yes, you're still going to do your work and your research, but you're not necessarily starting at ground zero. You've got the expertise of some of the the VAR staff and their relationships and their experiences with other customers to help you perhaps whittle down that potential pool of solutions down to a more manageable number that you then can have some of your people engage and look at. Absolutely. The other theme that was sort of mentioned in that is sort of this notion of outcome-based security, which I think is sort of in its infancy and means a lot of things to many people. As it relates to your relationship uh, with the VAR, do you think that there'll be a day where you don't buy a technology where you sort of buy an outcome? Or or do you think we're headed in that direction? I think in some ways we are, but I do think that's a bit further off, at least for security. Uh, There's just so many variables, so many things that change so quickly. And honestly, so many things that many organizations are just not doing well at a fundamental level that make me question our ability to get to an outcome-based security model anytime soon. It would be a very difficult thing at this stage. I I, I think so as well. It's a wonderful thing to think about uh, where you're buying a capability and buying an outcome. I think we all want that. The number of variables and and the the details, I I think, will, will stumble on those especially as it relates to one of the biggest pieces, kind of the the middle or the core is managing the internal tribes, if you will, uh, managing politics, managing adoption uh, of capabilities. Very difficult. Agreed. Conceptually, do you believe that you can ever pay someone else enough to care about your problems as much as you? Fundamentally, no. Uh, I I just don't. I don't think that that the interests are aligned. Uh, financial incentives can go a long way, but that's not at the end of the day uh, enough, I think, to completely align the two interests. That's not to say that you can't outsource things successfully. You can, but I think you have to understand and recognize the differences in motivation. The core of the question, I think, is we all need help. Uh, I think we can all agree to that at at various stages of, of maturity. Is there a time? that you outsource and then insource? Like, how do you work that internally? You're a new CISO. Let's say you're giving advice to me. I'm a brand new CISO. I have little resource, little headcount. I'm trying to hire. How would I go through uh, that process? What would you recommend to me in terms of explaining what to do, uh, what to outsource first? And then is there a path to insource if I need to do that, if I need capabilities 
now? Is there an approach you take? There is, but I don't think anyone's going to like my answer because it's what we say all the time. And it's so easy to say, but it's so hard to do that it really needs to start with a risk assessment and, a, you know, an information security maturity capability measurement. Understanding what are your risks and then what is the capability of your organization. And let's not strive for ultimate perfection and ignore the opportunity to measurably reduce risk. And you can measurably reduce risk leveraging third parties to help you. There's absolutely, that does work. The, the trick really is to figure out which ones are the right ones to outsource and when. And then to your point, when does it make sense to perhaps consider bringing some of those things back in-house? And I think you have to do it with a look at the risks, a look at your understanding of your internal capabilities, and then the third leg of that stool would be the budget. What's your favorite thing to own as a CISO? Oh, for me? Well, it's technology for me. <laughs> yeah, uh, I've been a, a network guy forever. I love being down in uh, whether it's the new craze for me is the data, getting visibility to data, whether it comes from you know, physical badging systems, whether it comes from data coming into uh, a security analytics platform and the resulting uh, information that comes out of that analytics platform, it, it's all data now for me. Not so much the financial data. Yes, I have to do that for my budgeting, but it, for me, it's really the security data and trying to look ahead at new ways uh, to be able to have the organization uh, be more aware, uh, detect quicker and respond quicker. Maybe with that, I mean, access to data, which is surprising. You, you gave a technical answer after spending really offering kind of a masterclass on budgeting and influence and VAR management, which is sort of non-technical. Well, you asked what I liked. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, but there, uh, yeah, absolutely. But, but this is, this is great. Flipping back into the things you like, how then do you pivot on that visibility and analytics to have maybe greater influence or maybe greater storytelling ability as an executive, as an officer? Maybe if you could share a story there or a little vignette on that, I would love to hear that. Sure. So again, you need to be able to effectively communicate. Everyone always says that, but it is a truism. Uh, and that means understanding the different ways in which you communicate with different audiences. So you're not going to go into your board, uh, or at least I would not recommend going in to meet with the board or with your senior executive team and start talking about the latest attack or the particular characteristics of this malware. That's just not going to happen. You're not going to talk about the trends that you're seeing and the click rate of who's clicking on uh, potentially malicious URLs in phishing messages. But you do want to be able to explain how the investment that the company's made is translating into real risk reduction. And those are not completely dissimilar topics. It's a different message in the way that you're communicating it, but they all are really the same thing. It's just how you explain it. Uh, so rather than explain about why this particular solution you bought is the greatest thing ever and you're catching so many more things, you need to be able to communicate to the board or the executives about how this investment has measurably reduced risk, that 
this percentage or whatever measure you want to use. And metrics is a whole other discussion. It's a, one that's a lot of fun to argue and, and talk about. But how do you communicate that effectively? And I have found it to be quite rewarding to be able to figure out that way to deliver the message to the different audiences of the company. So to talk to your uh, security team and your Windows server admins and your DBAs and talk about how this capability that you're, you're bringing about and you're planning is giving them better visibility. Uh, because remember, a lot of the solutions, in my opinion, that information security needs to deliver are not only valuable to be consumed by the InfoSec team, Many of the server admins, when they understand what you have, are very thankful for getting access to that information because it can help them better do their jobs, too. Uh, so it's not just about meeting with your own team because you're bringing solutions to the company, meeting with them and discussing with them, but then also meeting with the executives and explaining the progress and why that money they trusted and invested in your team and your projects was well invested. And that helps you when you go back for more uh, to explain and, and give them confidence that you're going to use it wisely. So you come off uh, not only as a great leader, but also to use a very simple term, just friendly, solving problems for other people. Well, for me, that's what I like. I never came into info security to be a policeman or enforcer. I, I don't enjoy that role. Uh, that's not for me. I like solving problems. I like making things better. I like participating as a team and driving towards a team goal. Do you have a relationship with the sales organization of your current employer or maybe prior? Because there's a relationship between good security capabilities, customer demands, and, and the ability to, to have a, a good sales cycle to make money for the company. Do you have a relationship and what's that like? I do. And I enjoy that quite a bit. I've been very fortunate in my career to have different positions, some more internally focused, some more externally focused. I've managed sales engineers. Uh, I've worked on evangelizing a company's security message. Uh, and in my current role, while I am responsible for the company's information security and risk management programs, uh, I do support the sales team quite a bit. And there's a really good reason for that. Again, we are a for-profit company, publicly traded. And if I'm able to help the sales team better explain and communicate how our company's information security risk management program translates to a better outcome for our potential customers and prospects, I'm really happy to do that. A lot of reasons for that. One, I enjoy knowing that I'm contributing to the greater success of the company because yes, it's important to reduce risk, but you know, if they're not, if the sales team is not closing deals, things are not going to go well. So I enjoy contributing there. But I also enjoy the interaction with the customers, and it's very interesting the questions that you get asked about either your company's information security program or potentially the challenges that a prospect might be describing. I find that to be quite interesting and rewarding. This might be a topic for an entirely different show, uh, the relationship between uh, sort of security or the, the representation of it and sales. I think it's something that people uh, often overlook. In fact, most CISOs that I ask, in fact, I've had none of them, with exception of, of this discussion, come back and say they've got a, a relationship with their sales department. Well, that could be a consequence of the fact that I do work at a smaller company. So, you know, we're about uh, sub under a thousand employees uh, and 
in the office in which I work, they're right across the hall and I see them every day or bumping into them at the water cooler or the coffee machine. And so we're, we're tight knit as a smaller organization. Good point. I do think, though, if you had to give advice, I think some of it may come from, you know, you've worked for, for other vendors and had both internal and external sort of roles. But for somebody who hasn't, for somebody who's working at a traditional company, maybe they're a, a Fortune 1000, so slightly larger. What advice do you have there? You've got the experience on that sort of helping sales. and You've been doing it, sounds like, for a long, a long time. What are two or three things that the listener could adopt and maybe have a better relationship with sales? Well, first and foremost, uh, get out of your office, get out of your cube, go talk to people and go talk to people that are outside of your organization. Go ask, you know, what they do, what they're working on, what are the challenges they're facing, what are some of their most recent successes, find out how the rest of the organization works. Uh, it, it can be very inspiring and helpful. It can also potentially lead to new opportunities. I mean, there are lots of different ways for people to grow their careers. You can stay as a practitioner of information security. You can move to a solution provider and be a sales engineer or be a salesperson. Lots of different opportunities. But if you don't interact with people, it's really hard to be able to plan out your career, either to know what you're interested in or to become aware potentially of opportunities completely agree. Um, in one of my prior positions, it became very clear that one key message, if you could include it, uh, especially to the ELT, is if you could include a message around how many logos you helped retain or add, specifically in a sales cycle, as a result of assisting in that process as a representative of information security. Uh, so the the re retaining and adding logos was a, was an excellent uh, discussion point. You could add in even anecdotally, um, and if you can speak that language at a high enough level, if asked, uh, it's a feather in one's cap. I completely agree. I mean, it, that's and it's not necessarily about well, you know, what's my count, but it's really about engaging with the larger part of the organization, recognizing that at some level. Every member of the organization is a representative of that company uh, and is in some way assisting the organization in achieving its goals, whether it be directly through supporting the sales process or cost management, uh, you know, or getting your projects done on time or early. So kind of circling back around, have you ever had as a request from the sales cycle, maybe there's a, a prospect, somebody who who is asking either in a third-party risk question or maybe a new deal, and there's a, a gap in the security program, or at least they see it as such. Have you ever had an addition to the security program funded as a result of a prospect request? Yes, it, it does happen. Uh, I will tell you that that's one that doesn't happen as quickly as most people would think, at least not in my experience. Uh, I have seen, and this is it's another reason why it's important to maintain strong relationships across the organization. I, I have had positions headcount in my org that have been created because the sales team said, we need this capability. Uh, we know and we believe that the this capability should be in this person's organization. And, you know, we want it funded. And that sometimes can do wonders. 
I, I completely agree. Uh, it, all, it all starts with that relationship, though, uh, which I think is a challenge to, to anyone who's listening. I think making sure that you have that both, you know, we mentioned legal and privacy and HR, but uh, not to overlook sales and even marketing. Have you done any work there on the marketing side in your past? Yes, uh, many different organizations. It's interesting, having worked for a, a couple of information security solution providers, the one thing I will say about marketing is, and I love marketing, uh, it's very exciting to see how they engage with prospects and how they come up with the, the messaging uh, that the sales team is often going to use to explain why company X, and you know, why trust us, why buy the solution. Uh, being able to participate in that effort being able to, uh, in in some cases, uh, inject a little bit of uh, reality into the message to make sure they don't get too far off base. Not necessarily a regular occurrence, but there are sometimes when marketing folks will use words that I never want to hear anyone say about uh, security. Uh, things like impenetrable, unhackable, you know, those kind of words that are almost like throwing down a gauntlet uh, of a challenge to an organization. So, but no, I, I really have enjoyed working with marketing. Yeah, no, that's. That, uh, I heard the laugh uh, early in your response, and I thought I knew kind of where you might be going with that. And, and acting as a maybe a, a consultative or a corrective voice uh, is something that we've probably all done a little bit of. But I think it rounds you out as a leader to have those relationships and not just be the maybe the old CISO for, of, of years past. You know, you're. Well, you're, I think Steve, that's exactly the point. Right? Is do you want to be the security guy or do you want to be a leader in the company? And I'm not saying you can't be both, uh, but I'm saying that in my opinion, you really need to make sure that you're focused on being a leader first and then be accountable for your function. But it is really looking to be a leader in the organization. So would you say that that the CISO position is sort of getting bigger, uh, not, not from a, a security perspective? Not, certainly getting bigger from a risk perspective, but setting that aside, um, we've got a lot to do. The, the better CISO, the new CISO is, is, if they're doing their job, that it's becoming a larger position. I agree. Uh, it's becoming a larger position because it's, it's, in my opinion, less focused on just implementing technology and more focused on managing business relationships and at the core identifying and guiding an organization through the navigation of risk management. I guess the only thing I would uh, really encourage anyone that is pursuing an InfoSec career and looking for ways uh, to progress and understand what they want to do, really get immersed in the InfoSec community. Uh, meet people outside of your company. I sure wish when I was uh, younger that we would have had things like meetups uh, and things like you know, some of the free conferences that are around the, the country, the B-sides and some of these things, those are tremendous opportunities for folks in the information security community to learn. Um, but even perhaps more importantly than learning is networking and meeting people. Uh, because I used to be quite introverted uh, and have learned that there's tremendous joy in meeting other people, in learning and in sharing. I could not agree more. Could you maybe tell the listener where is home for you uh, for purposes of maybe then sharing, maybe even in your hometown or not, that, that you would either send your staff to or go to yourself? Sure. So I live in the Northern Virginia area outside of Washington, D.C., a big proponent of the B-Sides organization and the conferences that they organize. 
uh, great, great events, great places to meet people. I've had the fortune to attend several across the country, and it's just very inspiring to get to meet the people, to hear the topics. Uh, it's a fantastic organization. But outside of those, which are less frequent, there is a tremendous uh, meetup, and not just the, the meetup website, but in, gene- in generic terms, meetups. Uh, you know, pick a kind of a technology that you might be interested in whether it's something like application security and the different OOPS chapters across the country, whether it be some kind of a user group for the many, many vendors now are sponsoring or organizing regional-based around major cities user groups for their technology. A great way to go meet people, uh, learn about some new things that are happening. Really, really exciting. In earlier in my career, some of the best people I met were as a result of putting together local events and then uh, becoming friends with those people and then moving forward and, and attending others. So we used, to, we used to rent a van and drive from Indiana to D.C. to go to ShmooCon. And I love ShmooCon. Yeah. And, and the friendships we made there, um, fantastic. So it starts locally and then it sort of grew to national. I'm still friends with those people today. I couldn't agree more. And I, I think that we all could do a little more. Because sometimes we are the technician, maybe we are hyper-focused on that, uh, maybe we are a little nervous to socialize. So it was really nice to be able to go to these larger conferences and know someone, um, someone to share ideas with, and and honestly just have um, someone to maybe share lunch with uh, or, or attend a talk with. That was phenomenal, Andrew. Thank you. That was very fun. I enjoyed it, Steve. That concludes this episode of the new CISO. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more episodes, suggest a topic or nominate a guest, please visit exabeam.com forward slash podcast.